to piggyback a little bit on what James was saying about prayer and fasting. I, I actually have come to really look forward to this time of year in January. We've been doing this now, I think, for five years, five 21 days of prayer, and it's just become like rhythmic for us as a church. Uh, it recalibrates us. When you think about prayer, I, I really appreciate what Richard Foster had to say about it. He said, all who have walked with God have viewed prayer as the main business of their lives. In other words, nothing's going to accelerate your life of faith like cultivating a habit of prayer. And yet, if we're honest with ourselves this morning, prayer is hard. Nod your head yes if you agree. I mean, it's not easy. Uh, I have struggled with prayer for much of my Christian walk, uh, cultivating it as a habit, something that I come back to over and over and over again. Um, I've been through the kind of whole array of experiences with it, whether it's saying like it's really sweet right now, I'm really enjoying it, or times where I'm like, is God even listening to me at all? Is he hearing anything? Or even seasons of prayerlessness where it's a struggle to pray. Now, the question you have to ask yourself is, why is that? Well, one um, writer, this was Thomas Goodwin. He was a Puritan, and he said this. Um, Our fallen nature is actually allergic to God and never wants to get close to him. So, thus, our fallen nature is constantly pulling us away from prayer. And you think about that, and you say, Wow. That's real. The struggle's real. And one of the reasons we celebrate the gospel every single week in this church is because we know that God sent his son Jesus in the world precisely because we are allergic to him. I think about that for just a second. You and I were all born with a God allergy. Um, okay. Uh, God is like the center of everything. He's the author of life, the sustainer of life. How does it go for us if we're allergic to him? Think about being allergic to water. How would that go for you? Uh, there's actually an allergy like that. And just as it would be a struggle to live life if you were allergic to water, you can't really live this life if you're operating allergic to God. Enter Jesus into the picture, right? God sends his son into the world. He dies for us. He gives us a new spirit. He gives us a new set of desires there. We say, okay, I'm ready to come back to God, follow him, be close with him, walk with him. And then God gives us the gift of the Holy Spirit to change our hearts, to give us new desires, new attitudes, so that we would walk with him in this world. But I have to be honest, old habits die hard. <laughs> Sometimes, even though I've trusted Jesus as my Savior, I still operate like I'm allergic to God, even though because of Jesus, I'm no longer allergic to God. So what do I do? Well, I think that's actually one of the main reasons why fasting is becoming a very important part of my life. Uh, one author says it like this, you need to think of fasting as an assistant to prayer. 
It helps you learn to pray. It gives you new energy to want to pray. Let me make a couple of points about fasting. The first is this. When we tend to think about fasting, we tend to think about it through the lens of losing something, but we actually need to start thinking about it through the lens of gaining something. You're not just giving something up, right? When I started practicing fasting, I'd be like, oh, the only thing I can think about today now that I'm giving something up is food or whatever that thing is. And really, the idea behind fasting is like you're setting something aside to gain something superior. I'm setting aside the time that I would normally take to eat to get the superior time that I can spend with God. You know, when Jesus was questioned about fasting in Matthew chapter 9, they came up to him and they said to him, why is it that your disciples do not fast like the Pharisees do? And maybe you remember his response. He said, you know, does the wedding party fast and and mourn when they have the bridegroom with them? No, they celebrate But at one point, the bridegroom is going to be taken away, and then they will fast. Think about that. The disciples are not fasting because Jesus is living on earth. He's living alongside of them. But today, we don't experience Jesus like they did. He's like that long-lost friend that's thousands of miles away that I can't have the face-to-face meeting with. So scripture says one of the outlets for that longing is fasting. Now let me make one more point about fasting. Christian fasting has to have a purpose. Have you kind of noticed that recently fasting has kind of become a a thing that is in vogue, like intermittent fasting. Uh, They actually talk about multi-day water fasts, that this is a part of a healthy living life cycle. Well, that's all well and good. It's actually quite incredible that, you know, denying ourselves of something is actually good for us, right? Who would have thought that? But it turns out that If your motivation for fasting is just weight loss and there's not a spiritual purpose behind it, you're just going hungry. So what should our purpose be? Well, you know, the word we've been using around here with respect to 21 days of prayer is breakthroughs. Uh, Maybe you need a breakthrough in your personal life. Maybe corporately we need a breakthrough. I mean, after all, back in the fall, we started stepping forward in this Our Story initiative together as a church family, and we said we want to trust God for really big things and expansion of our ministry. We want to trust him to better reach our community and to grow as a church family together, and we care about the next generation, and we want to see this place live on decades into the future for those who would inherit it. I don't know about you, but I'm sensing that we're going to need some breakthroughs if that's going to happen. So in 2024 and beyond, we're going to have to trust God in new ways. We're going to have to step out individually. We're going to have to step out as a faith family. So we need to be praying, fasting, seeking God's face for this. With all that said, let's enter into our text now. We're in Philippians chapter 2, the next part of this series. And just a reminder, we make our way 
through the scriptures because this is where we learn about this Christian walk. So I want to read verses 12 and 13 in Philippians chapter 2. Verses will be on the screen as well. Dear friends, Paul says, you always followed my instructions when I was with you. And now that I am away, it is even more important. Work hard to show the results of your salvation, obeying God with deep reverence and fear, for God is working in you, giving you the desire and the power to do what pleases him. So if you ever followed along in a Netflix series or something like that, we've had a little bit of a gap, so we're going to have to catch up a little bit. You know you know how they do the series recapped? Well, previously in Philippians, right? So let me just kind of give you a little bit of that information. Remember what this letter is all about. This is a letter where Paul, a prisoner in Rome, an apostle, is writing to this Macedonian church, Philippi, which is struggling. He's in prison, they're experiencing persecution, and he's writing this letter to say, guess what? Despite our circumstances, there is still joy to be had. In fact, we can be the happiest of all people. doesn't matter what happens in this life. In Christ, there is real joy, and we've seen those themes. We've seen the themes of joy and perspective and suffering. We even talked about at Christmas Eve, humility. Paul is looking at this church, and like any of us, say you've run, um, led at a high level in a company, or you run your own business, or you're a school teacher, or you're a parent, and you're looking down the line, and you're saying to yourself, at some point, the people behind me are going to be taking this operation over, and they're going to need to be able to stand on their own two legs. I'm not going to be operating forever. You know, there's a expiration date that hangs over all of us, we think about it spiritually. If you've ever discipled someone in Christ or if you're raising kids in the faith and you think to yourself, I've got to teach them to make their faith their own. I think about that all the time as a pastor. I can't believe for you. I can't practice faith for you. I wish I could believe for people, but I can't. It's all on them. And in the same way, Paul is saying to this church, Listen, you've got to make this faith your own. You've got to step into it so that if I just drop in at some occasion, I'm going to find you doing this faith, practicing it. Now, where does he go after he makes that point to them? Well, if you look at verses 12 and 13, he makes some of the most important points that we learn about spiritual growth in all of the Scripture. Remember, he says that we are to work out our salvation with fear and trembling. And when he's talking about in these verses, is he's talking about the spiritual process that theologians call sanctification, uh, a very important theological term. This is one of those words that you don't want to just have go in one ear and out the other. You want to remember this word. In fact, let's all say it together. Sanctification sanctification is one of those terms that, you know, explains why or, or what our core purpose in this life is. 
And I would describe sanctification like this. It's the process where God makes us more and more like Jesus. If you're ever asking yourself, well, what does God want from me in this world? That's the answer. He wants you to learn to walk like Jesus, talk like Jesus, think like Jesus, uh, eat your cereal like Jesus. In fact, he wants you to think about your life through the lens of, if Jesus were living my life for me, how would he have lived it? And so this process of sanctification through the power of the Holy Spirit, God is empowering you to discern and desire and do his will just like Jesus did. Now you have to ask the question, okay, well, how does that all work? Who's doing this work of growth? Is it God? Is it me? And as you look at the Bible, the Bible answers both of those questions as yes, but the emphasis of the work is placed on God's shoulders. You see what Paul says, for God is working in you, giving you the desire and the power to do what pleases him. So if you're thinking about it as a, you know, share a division of labor, right? God's doing 99% of the work. You're doing 1% of the work. No God, no sanctification. But at the same time, if you don't do your 1%, you stall spiritually. That's why Paul's adamant here. Let me read this, the text to you from the English Standard Version. He says it like this. Work out your salvation with fear and trembling. Now, why does he say it like that? Do you think Paul is saying that he wants us to walk around and operate in the Christian life with anxiety that we're never good enough for God? Is that what he's saying in the text? I don't think so. I don't think that that's the New Testament message. I look at the Apostle John, and he says, perfect love casts out fear. You don't need to be anxious all the time whether you're good enough for God. Everything was put on the shoulders of Jesus. That's all set. That's all settled. So what Paul is saying here, I would suggest, is this. You've got to take your spiritual life seriously. You can't just kind of forget about it, set it on the shelf, endlessly put your time and attention in other areas. This deserves your focus. Now, as he's talking about how this growth works, he uses passive verbs to describe it. It's interesting, like when you think about how we engage with things. There's active engagement, there's passive engagement. You know, when I'm controlling something, that's active, right? And there's things I can control. I can pick up my cell phone, I can put your number and I can call you. I can jump into my car and I can drive to a location. But there's other things I can't control, like whether or not it snows when a nor'easter comes. And then there are things that I can't control, but I can impact. Think about sleep. I mean, I can't make myself fall asleep like I can pick up my phone and call someone, but I can impact it. Drink 12 cups of coffee before bed. See how it goes for you. If you want sleep to come, you enter into a 
posture of sleep, right? You go into a room that's quiet, you turn down the lights, you don't keep looking at your cell phone, you lay on a soft, comfortable bed, and then sleep comes. You can think about the difference between this, this active and this passive, like the difference between operating a motorboat and a sailboat. Uh, motorboating is active. You know, if you've got the cool latest motorboat, of course, you, you pump it up with gas, you get behind the wheel of the boat, you go off into the sunset, whatever direction you want, Nantucket, Martha's Vineyard, you're heading there. Sailing, though, is a little different. Now, you have a part to play. you got to hoist up the sail. You have to steer the sailboat, get the rudder in the right direction. But what happens if there's no wind that day? You're going nowhere. You're dead in the water. Uh, in fact, you have to put a motor on those things so that if there's no wind, you can take a more active control of the boats. Jesus says in John chapter 3 that the Holy Spirit is a lot like the wind in our lives. He says this, the wind blows where it wishes and you hear its sound, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. So think about your life. Paul's saying you've got a part to play in your spiritual growth. But really what that involves is you learning to work with the Spirit. Where is the wind of the Spirit blowing over your life? Where are you seeing God at work? Uh, maybe God's at work because you're like, I'm just becoming aware that I need to start thinking about God and I need to start involving him in my life. And let me just tell you, that's a big deal. That's really important. Uh, we're talking about breakthroughs as a church for the next 21 days. Where do you need a breakthrough? Maybe you need victory over a sin pattern in your life. Or maybe there's a next step of faith that, that God is trying to lead you in. The wind's blowing, but the sail's down right now. And you need to step out and go with him. Let me ask another question. You ever even going out and giving the Holy Spirit the opportunity to blow the sails of the boat? Maybe I'll run the risk of mixing metaphors here, but are, are you treating him like a ship passing in the night instead of opening yourself up to his guidance and his direction for your life? I love what John Ortberg says. He says, for many of us, the great danger is not that we will renounce our faith, it is that we will become so distracted and rushed and preoccupied that we will settle for a mediocre version of it. We will just skim our lives instead of actually living them. I don't want to skim. I want to work out my salvation with fear and trembling. I want the Holy Spirit energizing my life, directing it. Now let's get back into the passage because I think it's important to understand the broader point that Paul's been making in this entire second chapter of Philippians. You might recall, if you were here for Christmas Eve, 
that Paul was talking to this church about some interpersonal issues that were going on. Uh, the church was struggling with one another. The relationships were a little, you know, difficult. And so they send down a, an emissary, and, and Paul, of course, is called to play, you know, counselor or, or something along those lines. And Paul tells the church, listen, you can't operate like that. It's not going to help you in your mission there in Macedonia and Philippi. It's not going to help you grow. You, remember, are called to look like Jesus, act like Jesus, do what Jesus would do. And Jesus is primarily characterized by his humility. All right? How did Paul describe the humility to us? He said, he being God took on flesh. He actually actively chose to lay aside his attributes as God while he was a human being on earth. He went to the cross and gave his life, poured out his blood so that we might be forgiven of our sins. It's the humblest act in all history. And Paul is saying, if you want this life, if you want this joy, if you want this fullness, then you're going to have to avoid something. Now look at verse 14, and this is what he tells us to avoid. Do everything without complaining and arguing. Ugh. Really? Yeah. Why? Well, because the goal of sanctification, in a single word, is love. And love doesn't get in the corner with a few negatively charged people to talk about all the things that I'm unhappy about and how that person over there isn't quite right. And if they knew what I know, they'd be better off. Love doesn't seek to win the argument over preserving the relationship. In fact, when you think about the Holy Spirit in your life, there are some things you're going to see that the Holy Spirit brings about, and there's going to be the absence of things as well. The things that the Holy Spirit wants to produce in you is the fruit of the Spirit, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. You'll notice the Holy Spirit in a church and in your life also by the lack of things. Grumbling complaining, arguing with others, ego, me first, me always right. Paul is saying, you know, he's putting all of these things basically under a broader umbrella that I would call the critical spirit, and he's saying the Holy Spirit and the critical spirit are in like opposite places from one another. And here's the truth. He says that it's really going to impact your influence as a church if you give yourself not to the Holy Spirit, but to the critical spirit. Look at verses 14 and 15, how the two flow into one another. Do everything without complaining and arguing so that no one can criticize you and then live clean, innocent lives as children of God, shining like bright lights in a world full of, full of crooked, crooked and perverse people. He's saying, people are watching you. 
Uh, you, you say we're Christians, we love people. They're asking the question, do they really love people? And we all know that critical, nasty infighting is unattractive inside the church, outside the church. I, I read, um, you're going to love this one, Dean. I'm going to wake you up here. He's reading his Bible. He wasn't sleeping. This one's about a pilot, and it's his favorite pilot story. So everyone go after Dean after church and ask him his favorite pilot story. Uh, but I read this pilot story, and um, he talked about one trip that he had taken. There was in first class an elderly couple, and then there was a businessman. And as the elderly couple was coming onto the plane, they just really couldn't do anything right by this businessman's standards. They're walking too slow as they're boarding the plane. They're taking forever to get their duffel bag in the, the compartment overhead. And then when dinner comes around, he's sitting right in front of them, and he's, he's ready for his dinner. And one of, the mem- one of the couple, the husband, he gets up in the overhead compartment, and he starts accessing his duffel bag, trying to get his pills. And the guy's like losing it. The old man inadvertently drops the duffel bag on the ground, and that's the last straw. The businessman turns around, and he's like, what is with you two? I mean, have you ever done anything in your life? Like, what are you doing on a plane? The whole cabin hears him, and that's not enough. He's got to register his anger even further, so he sits down, and he slams his chair backward in full recline, and he takes the couple's dinners and just tosses it into their laps. The stewardess is mortified. She comes over to the guy, and she's like, uh, or the, the couple, and she's like, I am so sorry. Um, is there anything I can do to help you? And then the husband starts talking to her, and she's like, oh, you know, don't mind him, and this is our 50th wedding anniversary. This is our first time flying, and she's like, your 50th wedding anniversary? Now she's appalled. She's like, let me go get you a bottle of wine or something. We'll celebrate. So he says, okay. She goes, and she gets the bottle of wine, pops the cork, and uh, the husband stands up, and everyone's kind of smiling now for their 50th, and He proposes a toast, and then he takes the bottle of wine, and he dumps it on the businessman's head in front of him. (laughs) And the pilot said, get this, the entire compartment cheered. (laughs) I heard a uh, pastor say that a healthy church, a good church, kind of reminds you of a good restaurant. When you go to a restaurant, you want good food, but that's not everything, right? You want the place to have a certain atmosphere. A bad restaurant, when you walk into the place, is unwelcoming. They don't notice you. The staff seems to be just at one another's jugulars. It's all me and for me and what I'm getting out of this and hiding tips from one another and managers yelling at waiters and all of that kind of stuff. You enter into that space and you say, what? I'm never going here again. But a good restaurant, you know what I think of when I think of a good restaurant? The Daily Paper, Charlie. You know what I'm talking about. West Main Street. I call the place my second office. I love going there. 
I think it's consistent, clean, good food. The people, the staff, they just seem like they're being well cared for and they're happy. And guess what? When I walk into an, a happy environment, I'm happy too. It makes me feel good. I love frequenting that place. The same thing is true of the local church. A gracious and grateful church glows for Jesus. And Paul's saying, don't be the opposite. Don't be a bunch of whiners and grumblers and complainers. Well, how do I avoid that trap? Well, listen to how Paul thinks about his life. He looks at his entire life through the lens of servanthood. Let me read these last verses for you. Verse 16. Hold firmly to the word of life. Then on the day of Christ's return, I will be proud that I did not run the race in vain and that my work was not useless. But I will rejoice even if I lose my life, pouring it out like a liquid offering to God, just like your faithful service is an offering to God. And I will, or I want all of you to share that joy. Yes, you should rejoice, and I will share your joy. You see, what Paul's saying here, he's giving us the secret to joy. Here's the secret. Joy is not found in spending our time bickering and arguing and complaining and second-guessing everyone around us. Joy is a mindset. Joy is looking out at your life and saying, my life is an offering. My life is something that I get to give. And really, that's the verbiage that Paul uses in verse 17. He thinks of his life as a drink offering. Now, when the drink offering was offered in sacrificial worship, they would pour the liquid into the altar and then into the fire, and it would, it would make this sweet aroma effuse through the room. And Paul's saying, listen, I want every aspect of my life the way that I'm in prison, how I'm conducting myself there, the way that I act with people and friends and family and church. I want all of it to be a sweet-smelling aroma to God and to other people who interact with me. Let me ask you a question. What if we thought of our lives in the same way? What if, instead of saying about life, what do I get what if we kept asking our li ourselves, what do I have to give? You know, what if we thought my life is something that I get to give? Now, I want to suggest that there's a giant impediment or roadblock that is a part of this culture today that keeps a lot of people from experiencing this. And I just call it discontentment. I'm unhappy. I'm unfulfilled because I'm analyzing my life through the lens of all the things that I could have had, should have had, how this person treated me, instead of remembering that everything I have is a gift, the way God made me, where I was born, when I was born, even to the family that I was born, even if that didn't feel like a gift, let me say it can get worse. You know, if your constant thought process 
sounds something like this. I hate my job. There's something wrong with my spouse. I ought to be living somewhere else other than right here because there's something wrong with right here for some reason. This church is no longer the right church. Now, any one of those things can run off the rails. I get that. But if the common mantra, the common theme of my life is a series of thoughts like that, you're out of focus. You're preoccupied with the wrong things. You're forgetting that every single second of your life is something that you get to give. It's an opportunity. What if we thought like Paul? What if we thought like that at work, in our relationships, who we're dating, who we're marrying? Let me close with this thought from Paul again. This is verses 17 and 18. I just want you to kind of close your eyes and drink in these verses with me. He says, I will rejoice even if I lose my life pouring it out like a liquid offering to God. And I want you to share that joy. You hear that? God wants you to be happy. He wants you to have a life of joy. And Paul, a guy in prison, in a place where you'd never think to hear someone talking about joy, is finding that joy and contentment. Let me pray. Lord, as I think about this passage from Paul this morning, work out your salvation. Offer your life as a sacrifice. My life is something that I get to give. I can honestly say for my help, myself, and I'm sure I'm not speaking out of turn on behalf of this church, we could all use more of that. We could use your help, the, the energizing force of the Holy Spirit to make our lives the kind of lives that we're seeing described here in the Bible. I want to pray for each one here, Lord, as we go through this 21 days. Help us to be open. Help us to have our hearts in tune with where the Holy Spirit is going. We pray that you would enable us, Osterville Baptist Church, to be a community where breakthroughs are happening regularly. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.